Welcome to Pennycast, where we catch up with a range of interesting people and explore themes around the four pillars of financial freedom, growing wealth, family, protection and community, providing ideas and inspiration to live a more meaningful life. Hi, I'm Alan Thorne, and I'm delighted that you could join us for this latest edition of Pennycast, the regular podcast by Penny Financial Partners. Today, we're going to be looking at inheritance tax, a tax that you will sometimes see described as the most hated tax of all, as in the most basic terms, it can be seen as a double tax as it applies to a person's wealth, even though they will have paid tax on their earnings throughout their lifetime. Nevertheless, It is also a tax that offers significant opportunities for mitigation. Indeed, it could actually be described as a voluntary tax due to the various steps that anyone can think about when considering their IHT obligations. So I'm delighted that for this edition, we're joined by Dave Lardner, a senior technical consultant at Penny Financial Partners with a specific expertise in tax, trust and estate planning. And he's joined me today to talk about all things inheritance tax. So, hello, Dave. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Delighted to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So, Dave, I think, first of all, probably start from the beginning. And um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what is inheritance tax or IHT, as, as we may refer to it in this uh, in this podcast, uh, and who pays it? Sure. Uh, I think the the simplest way to look at IHT um, is to think about the size of your estate principally, and also the there are some complex rules, but but it relates to your domicile, not your residence. So residence is about where you live, domicile is about where you emanate from. So if I think about me, I have a UK domicile. I'm born to UK parents. So my domicile is based on my origin. So I'm I'm a UK domicile. And that means that I'm subject to inheritance tax on everything that I own in the whole world. It doesn't matter where it is. It's all added up. And that total is the part that be assessed. If I die tomorrow, would I suffer? Would my estate suffer inheritance tax? Now, if I was not originally from the UK, I would be non-domicile by origin but I might have acquired a deemed domicile in the UK because of how long I've lived in the UK. So your domicile is really, really important because if you're non-domicile, not yet deemed domicile, you would only pay IHT on your UK assets, not UK IHT on your non-UK assets. So there's a little bit of a, what's your background, where are you from? But principally, once you've got past that, this is add up the assets and are you or are you not above the relevant allowances? And they're quite simple. Um, it's a nil rate band. So the nil rate band is two uh, is a currently £325,000 per individual. And it's been like that now for um, quite some time. And it will stay like that till at least 2026. So with the assets rising and property prices rising, the nil rate band doesn't. So everyone is starting to see a greater effect of IHT. And that's why you'll see the revenue coming out and saying that they're making more tax receipts from it. Um, So in essence, if the total of your assets are above the NORIC band, plus some special rules around your main residence, if you're leaving that to your direct descendants, i.e. children, then 
if you're above the nil rate band, you suffer 40% tax on the excess above that nil rate band. That is a flat tax rate. There's no special rules. It's 40% for everybody above the nil rate band. You mentioned there, Dave, about um, there are some circumstances around main residence and how that can be that passed on to children, as you as you referenced there. So does being married also have an impact in terms of your your IHT uh, situation? Yes. Yeah. Put it simply, everyone gets a nil rate band each. OK, so a married couple are going to have two nil rate bands. So if we keep that simple, that's £650,000 as of today using the nil rate band that a married couple could have in their assets that before they start to pay inheritance tax. And IHT is typically a tax that applies on second death because you have got special rules between a married couple. So if, let's assume, Mr. dies first, Mr. can leave all of his assets to his his wife. And when he does that, it's called an interspousal exemption. So he's leaving it to his spouse. The transfer of his assets to her doesn't create an IHT test at that point. But when she subsequently dies, she's owning everything. But at that point, then it's about her own allowances. And due to some legislation changes, you've effectively got the ability to transfer allowances that the late spouse didn't use. So she would still have his nil rate band of 325, but it's based on a percentage. So if the nil rate band rises over time, she would have the unused allowance of what is the nil rate band at the point of her death. So it can get quite complicated. It's why it's an important area for advice, because I think it's simple to assume I don't have an IHT liability. I've got, you know, very little assets. I've only got my house. I'm sure that won't apply. You have the other people that can go the other way and say, I'm really worried about IHT. But actually, when you look at their affairs, when you understand allowances, you understand previous spouses or deaths that have occurred, by the time you tot everything up, they don't actually have an IHT liability. Um, so I think the importance of advice can't be underestimated here in order to assess what have you got, what's your domicile, what's your what's your assets look like, how liquid are they, and then almost what allowances are in play. Like I said, the nil-rate band is 325. The allowances on the property is a separate allowance. So if you were looking at a married couple, full allowances available based on the normal nil-rate band and the main residence nil-rate band, as they call it, you would have up to a million pounds before you suffer IHT. That assumes you haven't done anything else. And so, again, we touched on this. I mean, you've alluded to this as we've been speaking here, and obviously I alluded to it in the introduction. This is a tax that I guess can be seen or potentially be referred to as a voluntary tax because there are mitigations that can be explored to to minimise the impact of, of inheritance tax. And so obviously, I guess in this podcast, one of the things we wanted to look was kind of have a look at some of those different opportunities that people should be considering. Um, I guess the first one to look at is is, is probably the, the, the simplest, which is, um, you know, do nothing at all, ultimately. And and, and I guess that is a, an option if that's if, if that's the, the way that you uh, you feel about 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 this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it goes without saying that you're going to have some people's view will be one of it's not a problem for me and my estate and that might be a personal view it might be a personal circumstances decision it might be a view based on believing that you have it's your right and your duty as a uk taxpayer and resident and domicile to pay the right way if that makes sense 
So I think it is quite voluntary. I think there are scenarios where someone would take a view that says, I started with nothing. My parents didn't leave me everything. I built up my assets. Um, my children, although I want them to have something, I'm I'm happy that they should be grateful with a net amount. That is, that's part of the, the way this works. And then you'll have those clients that say, no, I worked really, really hard for my money. Why should a load of it go to the tax man if I can avoid it using legitimate planning? Because everything that we'll talk about here, this is all standard planning. There are, of course, different ways of using your solutions. And, you know, advice is important because there are really, really important aspects to consider in terms of the order of how you do things to maximise reliefs and allowances and tax calculations. But you have a choice. Everyone has a choice. That yeah. Absolutely, everyone has a choice. Pay the tax or seek to avoid the tax. But I think it is about mitigation. And I think that typically in an advice sense, mitigation is better than payment. If you're happy to make the payment, you won't do any mitigation. You'll let your estate be what it is. You'll let it grow to what it is. And anything you leave behind will suffer that tax if it's above those allowances. And the heirs to your estate will get the net amount. You may be completely happy with that. They won't be able to retrospectively change and say, well, let's let's wish he'd done. Let's I wish dad had done this because we'd have got more the beneficiaries don't get that option right and and so i mean you talked about you you, you create discussed a scenario a, a little a while ago about you know effectively up to a million pounds as a married couple with all the allowances and so on and so forth so i mean if your estate i guess kind of tipped over that a little or you know by a lot or whatever it might be i guess another option could be dare I say, spend more, you know, it could be a situation where people may think um, as they get to a certain point in their life when they're looking at their estate and considering what their IHT obligations may be, they may think that this is actually an opportunity to to go out and, 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 and maybe live a slightly more, um, uh, how should we say, lavish lifestyle. Is, is that something that uh, I guess it's a, a realistic option? I don't know how many times in your professional career that's that's an option that some people take yeah i think it's it's absolutely a conversation that you know any advisor would have with a client around their needs and objectives their thoughts towards the liabilities and their thoughts towards action or inaction isn't it um i think that you tend to see a change as time progresses so i think you know if somebody sat down with me and started trying to talk about iht whether i have a problem or not i'm probably not currently worrying about that tax worried about what happens when i die wanting to think about giving away money in case that tax liability is quite high that that's probably not right for me but if i'm in my 70s my children are much older i'm start you know i'm, I'm now a grandparent i think those are catalysts for a change and even if your view in your kind of 50s is that i'm not worried about the tax i think when you start to see the generations of your family expanding you suddenly or, or certainly in my experience you do see a, a, that as a catalyst for people to think what's the purpose now why have i got this estate who's it for why am i doing this why am i growing it how big is it how much do i need um so i think those are definitely factors and then if you do decide i want to do something yeah the simplest is just spend more money you spend more you've got less the revenue can tax less isn't it but i think what you also tend to see and i'm generalizing 
is that by the time you are worried or in a position to plan against inheritance tax, you've typically already formed your normal lifestyle and your normal spending, whether it be on holidays, day-to-day -day bills, the new car every few years that people like to do. You don't tend to change that form of spending once you're much older. So it's hard for some people in that mindset to say, I'm just going to spend more. I think it's actually quite difficult to just suddenly change that mindset. Yeah. It's Absolutely. possible, but I think it's difficult. Now, you touched on this just a moment, a, a few moments ago, talking about pensions. Now, it's something, you know, about pensions sitting outside of, typically sitting outside of the estate, I think is, is, is what you said there. So how do, how do pensions fit into this kind of IHT conversation? Are they, do we, are they separate? Do they, is, is there a consideration to be made there when we're thinking about IHT? Yeah, I think that one of the things you, you touched on in your introduction, I think is right. And I, and I think that it's important to understand the definition. So I think there is inheritance tax planning and estate planning. Now, personally, I see them as two different things. If I'm thinking about inheritance tax planning, my focus is on reducing the tax liability. If I'm thinking about estate planning, my my focus is potentially about the tax, but also about how I leave my estate, who I leave it for, in what structures and vehicles, thinking about how, how I want to pass it on, what levels of control I want people to have to use that money. You know, like like we've we you kind of said, you're going to have people with different lifestyles. You have people with different beneficiaries, different ages, and families change over time, don't they? Both personally, professionally, financially. So you see all these changes, and they're factors that people go into. I think pension has to be part of a discussion about estate planning. Arguably, it's a good IHT tool. If you're in a position to make contributions to a pension based on your earnings, and even a non-taxpayer can, it's just limited to 3,600 a year maximum gross, it's a part of an overall suite of things that should be discussed in an estate planning arena. Any contribution into a pension, typically aside from normal pension rules, which we won't focus on in terms of tax reliefs, money in a pension would typically be outside of your estate for IHT purposes. Now, that doesn't mean it's completely tax free because that's about pension rules and how it's passed and when you die and what the tax rates are of beneficiaries. The pension rules are an entirely different piece. But if you are looking to remove or reduce money from your estate, a contribution into a pension, especially when you're working and you're a taxpayer, that is immediately outside of the state. So for a lot of trust solutions and estate planning solutions, you would typically have to live a period of time for it to work. A pension contribution works immediately. So I think if you have got a pension or even if you haven't and you want one and you can contribute, then depending on your access requirements and how you feel about pensions generally, it would be strange not to see pensions being discussed in estate planning. Excellent. So, and you just touched on it there, so I wanted to kind of move it. And that's, I guess this feels like one of the, the, I guess these feel like the really key, potentially the key areas to be looking at, particularly if you've got a, a significant estate and a significant um, potential uh, um, liability with, with inheritance tax. So this was, so I guess, gifting and, and lifetime gifting and then and then trusts. And I know there's, there's kind of a, a, an, an extricable link 
in many ways between the two. But I guess looking first time at, specifically at the moment at gifting and some of the opportunities there, some of the pros and the cons maybe around gifting. Uh, yeah, so I think if you've if you've considered your position, you've taken advice, you're in a position where inheritance tax is a problem now, or you fear it will become one soon, i.e. that the values are pretty close around those levels. I think that you're then in a conversation about your action, aren't you? So if you if you assume that you've passed the inaction stage and I am worried and I do want to do something, then your action becomes about what's your purpose what's your intentions what's your desires all of which are ultimately your objectives aren't they and that's our job in terms of giving advice to somebody to help them kind of navigate their way through that because this is not an easy area you can keep it really simple okay a person who's got an iht problem could simply give away some money to a family member and unless it's exempt and i'll cover those exemptions Unless it's exempt, you would typically have to live seven years for that to leave the estate. It now sits in their hands instead. And if you died, you've reduced the value of your estate. OK, that is almost chasing the tax saving because I'm just trying to reduce the value of my estate. But it's not estate planning because you're just moving the problem down a generation. You're not giving yourself any control. You're not giving yourself any thinking towards estate protection in the hands of that recipient. You pass money to your son who's married, but in the middle of going through a divorce, there's a high chance that what he now holds is going to be attacked in the divorce. And what is your daughter-in-law will see a chunk of that in the divorce proceedings. That money gifted into trust in the right type of trust in the right circumstances would be a different outcome. So I think gifting is is quite a big range of, of factors and considerations. But if you keep it at simplest, that is, I'm trying to reduce the value of my taxable estate and I'm either giving it away to an individual or a series of individuals or I'm looking to pass it into some form of structure because now I'm thinking about what I want that money to be used for, who I want it to be used for, when I want it to be used for, all of which are factors in the trust planning side. And so so let's let's kind of drill down into that a little bit then, Dave. So we're talking about trusts. You know, something that is, um, you know, a, a fairly wide ranging, you know, it, it's there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of variety within that. Well, you know, a tr there's no such thing, dare I say, is, you know, just the, the, the single trust. Is, there's a lot of different um, factors at play there. So talk to us a little bit, Dave, about what we're talking about when you say we talk about trust planning and the different kind of um, considerations, the different kinds of trust there are out there. OK, so I think. Um, in terms of your trust planning, this is again back to that point, you've decided you're going to take some action and you're starting to think about what you want that money to be used for and who and when and, and, and in what forms. And typically part of that thinking is also about what you don't want. So it's not uncommon to have conversations with clients who say, well, look, longer term, I, I don't necessarily need this money. I quite like to put it aside for future grandchildren. It's very difficult for younger people to get on the housing ladder. So actually creating this fund from which my family can benefit in the longer term might be the, the kind of step onto that property ladder. That's not an uncommon thought process. So that's about thinking about when you want them to benefit, what flexibility you want. Maybe there's different ages. Grandchildren you need to think about who's going to need what when. They're not all going to be, you know, unless you've got twins, 
two separate grandchildren are going to have different points when they may or may not buy property. How do you treat someone who doesn't ever want to buy a property? Does that mean they get nothing from the trust fund? All of that flexibility is important. So I tend to think about this in a, in a simple form. A trust for all intents and purposes is a box of funds. Okay, Somebody is managing that box for the benefit of your beneficiaries. You choose who your trustees are, those people that manage that box. You choose how much you want to put in that box and you choose who that box is ultimately for. And the reason why you've got lots of trust, and this can be quite a complex area, is about the level of flexibility you want, the level of control you want, the ages at which you want people to benefit, how much freedom you want people to have in the, in the choices. Because quite commonly, those choices might happen when you're not around anymore. So you're thinking carefully about who that is that's going to manage that for you. Okay. And I think that what you're trying to ultimately do is balance your own requirements in your lifestyle and your lifetime. You know, you're not wanting to create an environment where you've given away so much money to reduce your IHT estate that you've got nothing left to live on. That's not a clever outcome. And it's not one that would typically be good advice. You're trying to balance your own needs, your intentions and desires to maximise the amount for your family whilst also typically trying to reduce the amount that's there for the revenue to tax. But you've got to do that in a careful way. You've got to do that in a legitimate way. You've got to do that with the right set of solutions to give you all the different points that we'd need to think about. So when you said about the trust, yes, you're right. There are different types of trusts. There are flexible trusts. There's very fixed and unchangeable trusts. OK, they're, they're absolute. They're very clear on who benefits. You can't make changes to them. They're pretty inflexible or well, there is all the way through to discretionary trusts where there's complete flexibility, but the different tax treatments in, in the two as well. And all of that needs to be catered for, which is the importance of advice. And once a, a, a trust has been established, I guess from it's not just the, the person who's establishing the trust that could benefit from you know the advice that we're talking about, but also, dare I say, probably the trustees in terms of um in terms of managing the trusts yeah absolutely and I, th I think that's a really important point that I think is easily overlooked and certainly in my in my experience it's a factor that is somewhat forgotten about I, I think you, you'd see a lot of trusts well managed by um, many family members and then you see those trusts where they've been in existence a long time nobody really knows the what's the why's and they're just ticking along so I think the importance of your trustees can't be underestimated and the importance of them receiving advice individually as well. I think that you've almost got to look at it as if I created a trust tomorrow, I'm the set law. The set law is the person who settles the funds into those trusts. I might be a trustee as well. And typically you would be because you're still alive and you want to be party to the decisions. But I'm going to select people that I trust to manage those affairs for the benefit of my beneficiaries. Now, the challenge comes is that the trustees have a legal obligation under the Trustee Act to manage those trust funds for the greatest benefit possible of the beneficiaries. So a trustee that is on a, that looking after a trust fund who has perhaps left that trust fund sitting in a cash fund because they they're quite risk adverse. OK, so they don't personally like taking risk. So they've left the trust fund sitting in a cash bank account. They're at risk bluntly of a trustee 
breach. So a beneficiary could take a view in the future that they haven't done their job properly by managing the trust fund for the greatest outcome possible. Okay. Now clearly, you know, you've got to cater for risk. You've got to think about the objectives of the trust fund. But yeah, trustees should be taking advice. There are many different things that trustees can invest in. There are many different things that can be catered for in terms of tax planning. And I think it's easy to think about who I would appoint tomorrow. You know, who are my trusted friends and family that I might consider appointing? Then I've almost got to think about the burden on them, their capability to manage that, their capacity to manage it. You know, I might choose friends. I know they've got the capability. They just haven't got the time. So all of those things are important. I think that that is another part that we play in in helping people achieve their estate planning outcomes. And that is making sure that we have a relationship with, that that we are able to have that rapport with the trustees to help them with their investment decisions, help them think about appropriate holdings, help them think about tax mitigation. Because there's one thing managing in inheritance tax in terms of building the trust funds, but don't forget that any trust fund itself is a holding of things. Those things would typically be invested. So then you're looking about income tax, capital gains tax. So all of that needs to be carefully considered and managed by the trustees. That is a, another layer of advice, isn't it, that people should have. Like we said, you keep that simple. You just pass the money to somebody. You don't have any of that complexity, but you're going to lose all of the other aspects of control and flexibility. And if you pass the money to someone and you fall out with them, you can't take it back because you're no longer in a good relationship and a good rapport. You've, you've already done it. That's in a trust fund and a discretionary trust fund at that. It's not their entitlement. So if you want to almost disengage them as a beneficiary and that they're now not entitled to anything, you have complete autonomy to do so without their involvement, knowledge or even say so. But you don't have that when you've given them the money directly. Yeah. And and what's in terms of the the kind of trust, what's that kind of relationship with the, um, the revenue? So in terms of reporting and so on, and, and you know, what's the, the the obligations in terms of kind of the what you know what can the revenue see what can the revenue know and and is that likely to change at all i mean how does what's that relationship there between the the two so it's a it's an interesting question because i think typically over time that relationship is dependent on whether there's been a liability that needs to be reported to the revenue so if a trust fund holds something that has created a liability the trustees collectively have a duty like all of us as individuals to account for those liabilities and suffer and pay any taxes that may be due. So over time, yes, when you create trust, there may be reporting requirements. That depends on what trust you're doing, depends on how much you've put into it, depends what type of trust vehicle you've created. They're all slightly different. Again, it, it leads to my point around advice. I think that you can't navigate this very easily on your own as an individual. You know, those lay trustees, the non-professional trustees, they might have real good financial acumen on a personal level and they are good with their financial affairs. But that doesn't mean that they can navigate this area. Um, I think in terms of reporting, to answer the question, there are changes that were announced in 2020 and ultimately the creation of trust funds now results there are a few exemptions and, it, and it's probably out, it's beyond the scope of this conversation, but typically speaking, most trusts now need to be reported 
So it's a bit like a census. The revenue now have an expectation that you would report the existence of your trusts. Like I said, there are some exemptions. The reporting of that trust must be done. Any existing trust, the latest point at which you can report without suffering the potential for fines and penalties is the 1st of September 2022. So there is time on our side, but you do have to, the reporting requirements have been extended. But aside from the existence of the trust, you have got all of the normal reporting that existed before. When you create a liability, who is that liability on? How has it occurred? In what holding has it occurred from? And the trustees have that duty. On in their duty as trustees, in their capacity as a trustee, they have a duty to do that. As, alongside all their normal personal affairs, which are distinctly separate, in their role as a trustee, that's their duty. And you, t- you typically find that the there's a lead trustee that the revenue will want to have a dealings with. They're not going to obviously deal with, say, there's four trustees. They want all four of them dealing with the entity. Um, and but yeah, reporting's definitely changing, continuing to change. Um, and I think if you are linked to existing trusts, whether that is trust you set up or you're a professional trustee, I think taking advice on your responsibilities for reporting now and historically and going forward is a really important factor. And that then can lend you to kind of lead to a review of what's the trust, what's the purpose, does it need to stay in place? Does it give you the benefits it was originally intended for? Perhaps it's come to its natural end now. Um, and we see a lot of that as well. So I think reviewing existing trusts, both in terms of purpose, outcome, holdings and reporting, is another factor that I would say is part of estate planning. And 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 so, I mean, really, as you, you we've touched on in the, over the last half an hour, which is there are a lot of opportunities to mitigate um, around inheritance tax, but the... I guess the clear message for I guess there's a that that idea of the blend, you know, that opportunity of a, a kind of a blending approach because there does seem to be quite quite a few different opportunities, but also fundamentally the the earlier that you're considering it and certainly planning ahead on inheritance tax would appear to um, reap significant benefits. Yeah, I, I think it goes without saying that when when you understand the principles of estate planning and that it, it isn't as simple as I pass it from A to B and now B owns it, I don't have to worry. The reality is that you have survival periods in a lot of this planning. And therefore, if you start this planning with a large estate when you're 92, your options are going to be more limited than if you consider this planning and start to take advice 60s, 70s. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that people in their 40s and 50s have IHT liabilities and need to start considering planning. But I think your planning is different there. I think that you're thinking about, am I looking to give away my money, reduce the value of my estate? Probably not. I might be looking to ensure that liability so that if I die, there is a lump sum from life cover that pays out that can settle that tax liability. But the older you get, you're probably looking at more of those mitigation plans because the desire to pay out regularly for a life assurance plan isn't mitigating the tax, it's creating a fund to pay for it. So I think you tend to see that that thing. And I think the other point to make is that we've talked a lot about gifting, but trust solutions and estate planning are not always just about gifting. I think there are many types of trust and, and certainly ones that, that we can manage 
that are they give you varying forms of access okay access to capital access to income now or in the future now all of those solutions will vary and that's about looking at the individual needs of, of the client in question and i think it's important to remember that it's almost the more access you have the less iht efficient it is the more you give up the more iht efficient it is and finding that balance that blended approach across your affairs is typically will typically create a good estate planning outcome and you may not get rid of the entire liability that might not be your intention but reducing that liability is typically something that most people want to do for the sake of their family because they don't like to see hmrc as a largest beneficiary of their estate perfect so dave that has been incredibly fascinating thank you ever so much for your insights uh, for this in uh, this for this episode of uh, of pennycast thank you so much for your time and um i do hope we get to talk again soon many thanks dave thanks very much